welcome to Gender Sexuality School. I'm Tara Goldstein and we're podcasting from Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Today, we have two Master of Teaching students, Bree McKenney and Emma Smith from the Ontario Institute for Studies and Education. They're here to talk about their Master of Teaching research projects. Both Bree and Emma are interested in supporting trans and gender creative students at school. Bree and Emma, welcome to Gender Sexuality Schooling. We're so happy to have you here. So to begin our podcast, could each of you tell us the title of your project, what it's about, and why you wanted to study your topic? Uh, yeah, sure. So uh, I'm Bree, and my uh, project is uh, supporting transgender and gender creative students, and it's a policy analysis of educational policies. Great. And these are school board policies? Uh, yes. And why were you drawn to the analysis of school board policies for trans and gender creative students? Um, I think it really started with uh, looking through some of the literature. I, I felt that supporting transgender and gender creative students was very important um, just because they're not always uh, visible in school. So there's not always that push to support these students until somebody becomes visible. Um, and so looking through a lot of the literature, what I found was that a lot of teachers and administrators aren't fluent in the policies that are created to support these students. Um, and so I guess I really wanted to delve into those policies and see why is that the case? Why do teachers and administrators not know about them? Is there something about them that's confusing? Are they fragmented? Where are they? So that was sort of what led my analysis. Excellent. And we'll go to you, Emma. What's your project about? Yeah, so my project is called The Princess Problem, Analyzing Representations of Gender in Etfo's Gender Book List. And it's a document analysis. I'm taking a look at a few of the books, as previously mentioned, from Etfo's book list on gender. It's part of a series of social justice book lists that they have created and which are accessible by any elementary school teacher in Ontario. And so I wanted to take a look at what they were recommending and see how these books are perhaps dismantling gender archetypes and stereotypes or how they might unwittingly be you know, upholding them. And uh, the reason that I was drawn to this question is because I've had a lot of experience working with kids and um, one of my jobs that I do on the side during my program is that I'm a party princess. So that means that I dress up on the weekends and <laughs> as a Disney princess and I go to these parties and a lot of the times I notice when I'm there that the kids have certain ideas about what it means to be a princess or... Um, what they can and cannot do based on the gender that they identify with. And so these kids are really, really young. And I think one of the primary ways that they're getting all of these messages are through stories, such as the princess stories that I'm um, basing my livelihood around, I guess, and also based on um, children's books that they might encounter at school. So that's why I was interested in the topic. Great. So back to you, Bree. How many uh, policy documents were you able to research for this particular project, which we know is a small project? So I started with uh, 13 policies, right. um, and they really varied in topics. So some of them were uh, more th like things like dress codes, and some of them were things like bullying and harassment policies, uh, prevention policies. Um, and, you know, when I had looked at the literature before, what I had found was that 
a lot of the policies are really focused on things like bullying and harassment prevention, um, which I would categorize as more reactive to the fact that there is bullying, that these are issues that transgender and gender creative students are experiencing. Um, so looking at the proactive side of things, that's more like creating these inclusive and expectant communities. Um, how, do we, how do we do that as teachers? What do the policies say about how we, we build our communities and how we support these students that would make it um, you know, a better place for them? So, you know, when I looked at all of these policies, um, it definitely was interesting because I found a, kind of a mix. So there were certainly things about bullying and, and harassment um, that I would categorize as reactive, um, but there were also a lot of really great proactive things as well that kind of surfaced as I was looking, and some things that kind of were in between. So that was right. really neat. That was something I didn't quite expect from the literature. It seemed very like one or the other, but as I really got into these policies, I was finding there's a great mix here. So that seems like a very interesting frame. Those that are reactive, those policies that are proactive, and then some that are uh, a mix. Um, did you find that there were any surprises in any of the documents, things that you weren't expecting? Um, I think I was I was pleasantly surprised looking through um, some of the information about dress codes, just yes. with uh, a lot of really comprehensive definitions that talked about gender identity and expression and explained the idea of cisnormativity and I thought that was something that as a teacher could be very helpful as a tool um, just kind of you know understanding not just the dress code policy but why cisnormativity is uh, problematic in schools so that was one thing that really stood out to me um, yeah and going back to something you said earlier, you were wondering if the policies were confusing or perhaps didn't have enough information, and if that was why teachers didn't seem to uh, to really take them up in their classrooms. But from what you just said, the dress code policy actually gives quite a lot of information, right? Mm -hmm. So in answer to your own question, do you have any sense of why these policies aren't being taken up in in the way that you would imagine would be helpful? Yeah, I think um, there was something to the idea of them being fragmented. I, you know, there in the policies that I looked at, there was one guideline that was fairly comprehensive that was focused on supporting transgender and gender creative students, and it was quite comprehensive. Um, but when you were looking at the other policies, particularly things that had to do with bullying and harassment, things that had to do with um, just you know, regular operations of the school and this, how the school day works, um, things like how uh, certain curriculum content might be chosen or things like that. Um, it was very kind of, you had to read through the each policy and you'd find snippets here and there that would reference um, maybe gender identity, gender expression, um, you know, but it was not, there weren't a lot of policies that really drove that point home. So I think as a teacher, if you were trying to find you know, these, these policies and these things that support you, because one of the things that the literature said was that um, often teachers are afraid to, con you know, uh, have these conversations and to approach um, topics of gender identity because they're afraid of backlash and things like that from the community. So if you're a teacher and you're looking for this kind of support in the documents, um, it can be kind of difficult to find those, those pieces and those snippets. So what's probably needed is an overall document that focuses on gender identity and gender expression, maybe pulling together all the different documents and yeah. using that for maybe teacher development. Right. And I think that was, you know, that was 
apparent was that there was that document. It does exist. Um, you know, there are things that have very specific information um, about gender identity. Um, but when you're looking at the wider tapestry of policies, it, it is fairly fragmented. Um, and I think that that professional development piece is really key. So a lot of these different documents stipulated, oh, we need professional development in you know this area and this area. Um, but what I would be curious to see is what does that professional development look like? What materials are they using? Is it really critical reflection on, on some of the institutional and systemic issues that transgender students and gender creative students are facing? Or is it more surface level? Um, are teachers receiving information about like gender identity literacy so do they understand the terms do they understand like what it means and then are they taking it to that next critical level which is kind of that anti-oppressive level excellent so on that idea of literacy we'll go back to the books that uh, emma is studying so emma how many books on the uh, list did you take a look at well, I started out, I wanted to just take the five most recently written because I think that a lot of strides and changes have been taking place in terms of the narrative surrounding the gender binary. And, you know, within the last 10 years, there have been a lot of efforts to dismantle and um, broaden kind of our ideas about gender. But when I went to the book list, the most recent book that they had was published in 2010. And wow. so you can imagine, I was very surprised by this. Yes. Um, and so I had to kind of reevaluate how I was going to find which books to study. And that's when I started coding around words, because last year my lit review was all about language and the um, messaging, the unconscious messaging that teachers can perpetuate by using certain language in the classroom. And so based on that, I started looking for words and just seeing where that took me. And so as I was looking through trying to find patterns, I noticed that there was one word that was being used more than any other in the book list, and it wasn't boy or girl or male or female. It was the word princess. Interesting. Yeah, so that, you know, with my positionality and the whole reason I came to this in the first place, I thought it was sort of a sign. And so I took all of the books that had the <laughs> word princess in them. There are four of them. What are they called? Do you remember them? Um, one is called My Princess Boy. I'm sure I have a list somewhere. Oh. My Princess Boy. Not all princesses wear pink. Princess Grace. And the last one is, ah, yes, uh, The Paper Bag Princess, which was a favorite of mine when I was little. Right. Um, yeah, so I started coding them for the language that they used, and that's where I kind of came up with the patterns that ended up in my findings. Fantastic. So what were some of your findings? What did you... Um, see as a pattern in these princess books? Uh, so one thing that I really noticed is that as much as the word princess was being associated with non-stereotypical female associations, more so those associations, those stereotypical associations were being made first. Sorry okay. if that was a little convoluted. So it seemed like the authors had to first establish the traditional stereotypes right. about females before trying to challenge them. Right. And I found that really interesting, um, but also troubling, because as I've been looking into the perpetuation of stereotypes and how they develop and, you know, keep going in a society, it's because we keep on repeating them. And people seem to even have a tendency when they see counter evidence against a stereotype to still hold on to that stereotype. It's like not even a logical thing sometimes. It like transcends logic, these stereotypes. And so when we're pushing these stereotypes at a child, 
and then trying to subvert them, right. the child might not get that messaging. Right. So. Were there any princess boys in any of the books? From what you've said, uh, it was about, uh, it was still a binary kind of dealing with gender, and they were different kinds of girl princess. Mm-hmm princesses but were there any boy princesses (laughs) yes so one of the books is called my princess boy right and so that's a book all about a character who loves pink and loves pretty things and sparkly things and loves to dance and it's a really really lovely book right um and it's all about how the people around him have the choice to either accept that he is a princess or not, right? Does he himself call himself a princess? He does, yes. That's a label that he takes for himself. But again, it's very much like this boy is different. He's othered because of the fact that he's taking on this role as a princess, even though that's a girl thing, air quotes. Right. Right. So even though the book is really trying to normalize, first it has to other him. And I found that really interesting. Totally interesting. So... Was there any non-binary gendered character in any of these books about princesses? No, there wasn't. And so what I've been working on as kind of a second half of my research paper is sourcing my own books and comparing them and contrasting them with these princess books to see if there's some other approaches that authors are taking more recently. So now I'm looking at books that were published within the last few years. And I'm finding a lot more just um, laying out identity first rather than laying out a stereotype first and subverting it. Excellent, excellent. So continuing on, um, Emma, thinking about what brought you to the whole project, your own work as a princess, and the things that you saw that were happening and the role you were playing in perpetuating particular Mm -hmm. ideas about princesses, now that you've done all of this uh, analysis, Do you think that there's any space in your own work as a princess to subvert some of the stereotypes or does something completely different have to happen at children's birthday parties? (laughs) (laughs) Totally. I mean, that's something I've struggled with the whole time I've had this job, right? Because you go into this room and the kids tell you like, oh, I wish that I were you, Elsa. I wish I were a princess too. And then they have all these ideas about what that means. And the thing is when I'm dressed up, I have the authority to tell them, no, none of this is what means being a princess. Yes. I can go ahead and redefine for them. And like, I've had a lot of success with that. Like there's a part of the party where we put magic dust on all the kids. And I often get a little boy saying like, oh, I can't have that. Can I? And I say, of course you can. Why can't you? You know? Right. And so you kind of do have that power, whether you're acting as a princess or not. And teachers have this too. They have the power to be role models and to redefine and to not even introduce stereotypes in the first place. I'd love to jump in if that's okay. Please, yeah. go ahead. <laughs> go ahead, great. I what you're saying about this, like, the authority and this this platform, really, that you have. Um, and I think I was saying to you earlier, but I'll, I'll say it again. Please. Um, you know with this project I've really grappled quite a bit with my own positionality Mm -hmm. being a cisgender person working with some very complex issues regarding gender and gender identity Um, and one of the things that I've really thought quite deeply about is my role as a teacher and you know as teachers we work with students who come from so many different complex intersectional backgrounds and I think we often have a tendency to sort of use our own positionality 
as a bit of a scapegoat sometimes to not engage with issues because we might say, well, I don't have that lived experience, so I'm maybe not the most competent or I'm not really, I don't have the authority here to talk about this or to comment on this. And I think that that's, um, you know, I think it's, in a really, it's an important part of allyship is to be able to recognize your own positionality mm-hmm. and to listen and to amp- be amplifying the voices. So in my case, I spent a lot of time thinking about how can I amplify the voices of transgender and gender creative scholars with my work, with my literature review. Um, and I really did my best to do that in right. this case. Um, so I think that, yeah, so I think that kind of having that platform as a teacher and using that platform um, for some of these, these equity issues and these... Um, you know, these things that maybe a lot of people wouldn't want to engage with because they're a little bit afraid to. I think that we can't be expecting, um, in, in the case of my project, I can't be expecting transgender and gender creative people to be shouldering that burden forever. I think it's an important thing that allies kind of take up that that cause and work alongside and amplify those voices. Um, as long as you, you know, picture yourself, pose yourself as the learner, mm-hmm. right? So I'll never be really the expert on this, this, ma- this subject matter. That's not necessarily my place, but I can still use my platform as a teacher to be, you know, teaching these things and amplifying those voices. Excellent. So let's continue on that on that idea. What are the implications of your research for other educators? Knowing what you know now, how might you work with what you found out? Mm-hmm. Um, what I found out, um, there is, you know, certainly a lot of content in these policies that protects your right to address these these um, topics. Uh, and I know that some people are, are concerned about backlash or, you know, not having administrator support, but there are things in the policies that you can point at to say, like, this is part of our curriculum. It's a human rights concern. These things need to be addressed. They need to be, as like you were talking about with the literacy um, and the, the literature, the books, um, they should be infused across the curriculum. This isn't something that we talk about once. It's something that we, you know, we try to integrate with all of our teaching with, you know, diverse gender identities, breaking down those gender roles and those gender norms. Um, so I think that's a really important thing for teachers to remember that these supports are there for you um, and you may have to go looking but it's becoming I think more widespread for there to be more comprehensive policies as in the case of those um, the ones that I was telling you about earlier Um, and then I guess also just um, you know it is a human rights concern. Right. I think these are really important topics that we need to be talking about, that students need to be hearing about, not just for the affirmation of individual students, but for our communities to be affirmative and expectant and, and you know, just good for everybody. So, yeah. Thank you so much. Back to you, uh, Emma. Um, what would you like to tell the folks who created that gender book list having done this uh, project what would you like to say to them if you were um, given the opportunity Uh, I know they're very busy right now with strike action but update your gender book list and your other social justice book list there are many posted there and I noticed across the board that I don't know when exactly they were posted but a lot more progress has been made. And so at the end of my paper, I recommend a few books that could be added. I think there's definitely an opportunity for more diverse voices in terms of authors um, as well. And I think it's really, really important 
with something like Etfo's book list, it does have power, right? A teacher can go and look at that yes. and might mm-hmm. find all of the books that they need based on that book list. And if that book list isn't fully encapsulating what is available out in the world, and that's going to make all kids feel represented in the literature, which we know is such an, a powerful and important thing for every student to feel represented right. in what they read and what's available in the classroom, then it's just not good enough, right? We need to make those things accessible to them. Right. So when it's all said and done and when um, our strike actions are completed, (laughs) do you imagine sending your uh, paper to ETFO? I was thinking about maybe turning it into an open letter or maybe even turning it into a children's book. Right. Interesting. <laughs> Interesting. That sounds that, that that sounds great. And uh Bree, do you have any plans on sharing your um your policy analysis or any plans for the future? How might you expand your your research? Um yeah, I I don't know right now if it's in a place where I would be um sharing it widely, but I do think that there are some implications for further research. I think that the model that I've used looking at these different policies um and kind of putting them together as a tapestry that kind of tells me I, I treated them as one document really when right. I was when I was working from them, and I think if I were to do this across multiple school boards or across um, just a wider you know a wider scale really um, I may be able to get a better sampling of just what types of policies are out there. Um, I'd love to look at rural settings as well um, and see what the you know if there's any difference between um, more urban and rural settings as far as how gender is uh, you know protected in school, how gender identities are addressed in schools. So I think there's definitely a lot that could be done there as far as research goes, but we'll see. (laughs) Fantastic. Any last words from uh, either of you? We'll start with Emma. Last words about what it was like to do the research project and, and your topic. Uh, It was really nice to be able to dip my toes into the world of research. Um, And as a teacher, you know, we talk a lot at OISE about always being a teacher researcher. Right. And I think that is something really important that I'll be taking with me into my career in the classroom. Hopefully I'll get hired at some point. (laughs) (laughs) But um, yeah, just always knowing that you're learning. Like you were saying, you're always a learner Mm -hmm. and you can really only talk, speak from your own experiences, but you can also provide opportunities to make other people feel heard and to, you know, give voice. So I think that's a really important thing to remember as a teacher. Thank you, Emma. And how about you, Bree? Um, I think the the biggest thing that I took away from this project, it was quite humbling. Um, I came into it thinking I knew a fair bit. Right. Um, and as I got more and more into the research project, uh, project I realized I was, I was like, wow, there's so much that I don't know about this topic. And there's so, so much to learn. And it's very much um, evolving as as we speak. Um, And so I think it was humbling for me. It was an amazing learning experience. Um, And I think it just was a really great reminder that this whole idea of allyship is is a journey. It's not something that you arrive at. It's something that you're continually building, you're working at, you're listening. Um, And so I think that was a really important takeaway for me. Wonderful. Bree and Emma, thanks so much for joining us today. I really loved hearing you talk about your Master of Teaching Research Projects. Bree McKenney and Emma Smith are Master of Teaching students at the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education at the University of Toronto. Bree is studying to become a teacher in the primary junior panel, and Emma is studying to become a teacher in the junior intermediate panel. All right. That's our podcast for today. You can find this podcast at www.lgbtqfamilyspeakout.ca. 
This episode was produced with support of the New College Initiative Fund and from Doug Friesen, who is a PhD student at the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education. Thanks to the LGBTQ Family Speakout team member Kate Reed, sound engineer Lisa Patterson, and musician Doug Friesen for creating the music that opens and closes the show. I'm Tara Goldstein. All the best.